0: Can property owners be forced to let union bosses into their business to negotiate with their employees against them? Well, the answer used to be yes, but not so much anymore. Ilya Shapiro from the Cato Institute returns. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. It's great to be here with you. Today, we're talking about a recent Supreme Court decision that Bolsters property rights. And as our professors in law school used to say, it puts one more stick back in the bundle. But before we get to all that, we need to thank our sponsor for their generous support. NOTA. Nota is powered by MIT Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of NOTA, a no-cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit TrustNoda.com forward slash legal to learn more, and that's NOTA spelled. OTA, Terms and conditions may apply. Okay, let's say hello to our return guest and friend, Ilya Shapiro, who is now, as I understand it, Vice President at the Cato Institute. Welcome back. Good to be back with you. Well, I understand this uh, promotion to Vice President is a relatively new thing, so tell us all about that.
1: Yeah, it's uh, as of the beginning of our fiscal year, which was in April, so I got bumped up. Uh, Cato is uh, growing and so has more officers of various kinds. Uh, I'm not so much one heartbeat away from the CEO, but I think uh, <laughs> there's now three senior VPs and I'm one of six VPs. So still uh, doing the same thing, directing the constitutional center, just have a little more, uh, I guess, gravitas behind whatever I send out to the uh, to the, the all-male uh, listserv.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. And I also understand uh, last time you're on our show, I think you had just pushed out of books. So I'd like to mention that while we're here as well. Supreme disorder,
1: judicial nominations and the politics of America's highest court. So whether Justice Breyer retires right after the release of this <laughs> podcast or a year from now, that's going to be a very topical. And uh, it's been certainly a, a, an interesting
0: ride as the Supreme Court is very
1: much in our political discourse.
0: Well, and this expertise is very apropos today because we're talking about this Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid case. And of course, as I read it and went through it, and as it was uh, featured in many articles, it's a property ownership rights case. And it discusses that line that government sometimes crosses when it infringes upon property rights and sometimes by mandate takes property this whole my land versus your land like this is my property get off kind of thing and so let's open with this Ilya just kind of in terms of private property question I've been quoting John Adams quite a bit on our show recently and he said once he said property must be secured or liberty cannot exist so this institution of private property why is it so critical to our liberty in a free country
1: Well, you're in good company quoting that line from John Adams. Uh, John Roberts, the chief justice, uh, quoted that in his opinion in the Cedar Point case. The court again and again has talked about how property rights allow people to shape and plan their own lives. Uh, that if, if you don't know what you own or what you can use, um, it's, it's a very different world. And so it's, you know, part of mixing your, your labors, uh, with property you own and, and developing that. That's kind of the, the basis of our, of our economy and the, the dynamism of, of our nation.
0: Well, the first stop in our discussion about the Cedar Point Nursery case, I just want to learn about the parties and the facts that sort of drove them into this lawsuit being filed. So they are an agricultural property owner that employs people on their property. Now, they somehow found themselves in conflict with unions in the area. So tell us about that, and then we'll follow up with some questions about the uh, pertinent laws.
1: Yeah. Cedar Point, a, a nursery, a strawberry grower. Uh, there are a couple of other uh, plaintiffs joining with it, but Cedar Point, the, the name plaintiff, is a strawberry grower employing about 400 seasonal workers and about 100 full-time workers, none of whom live uh, on the property. And uh, this dispute started based on a California law that grants uh, unions, labor organizations, a right to access any agricultural employer's property for up to three hours a day, 120 days of the year, so basically a third of the year, to be able to to organize uh, the workers there. And so the issue is, uh, does that kind of regular, but not every day, all the time kind of access, does that constitute a taking? Is that a, a taking of what property lawyers call an easement, a, a right to go onto the property regularly and, and effectively uh, permanently, if not all the time?
0: You know, one uh, one, question to build out there. Now, I I wasn't super clear on this. Did this just apply, this law just apply to agricultural businesses, or is this something that goes to all businesses in California?
1: This particular one is agricultural businesses. There are somewhat similar ones applying differently uh, elsewhere to other kinds, but this case and this specific law is just agricultural, which is important in California and and other states that have uh, relatively large workforces and uh, a history of United Farm Workers and others trying to organize them.
0: And building upon uh, some more um, aspects of property, and I think I already know the answers to this, it was not addressed specifically in the case, but I'm assuming that the union leaders don't pay fees or any type of rent to utilize the property, Right. That's right. Well, that's the
1: basis of this case. Cedar Point wanted compensation here from the government, because after all, it's the government that's passing a law to allow the unions uh, onto the property. wanted compensation for what they argued and what the court ultimately accepted was uh, an easement, this right to access and a a denial of the right to exclude one of those sticks in the bundle that you were alluding to uh, in your intro.
0: Yeah, and then also, you know, these union leaders were not paying part of the property taxes for their rights to use the property. And I would also assume that if there was a slip and fall incident during one of these union meetings, that it would be the property lawyer who would be held liable and not one of the union leaders. So I didn't see anything in the case mentioning that, you know, those uh, responsibilities that go along with property ownership. And so let's talk about the pre-existing rule. Yeah, that's
1: one of the key things here because there there wasn't a permitting process. It's not that, you know, if the union wants access, they have to pay an access fee or anything like that. It's not, um, you know, uh, there, are, there are permits that uh, some businesses have. A lot of businesses have permits of various kinds, you know, to, to allow health inspectors and others to go onto their property, uh, you know, as a condition of, of getting your business license, you you allow those kinds of inspections and, and things like that. So there was not that kind of permitting scheme or anything like that associated with the, the union organizing.
0: What were the uh, formalities for coming onto the property? I understand that there was some notification that had to be given and how many people typically accompanied say a union organizer to a particular property. Oh
1: boy, you're you're really drilling down here on the on the particulars <laughs> of the case. There's a there's a formula that was in the law. I think it was one uh, one or two union members per 30 workers and then once you get above 30 workers then it's uh, or once you get above 100 workers they add on certain others. But in any event, it's it's more it's certainly more than one.
0: Yeah, and they they could come on, they could talk, and I mean, they weren't allowed to disrupt, but, you know, it is a distraction at the workplace. And so I wanted to bring that up because— Well, it depends what you define by, by disruption. Uh, here in
1: this case, they, they came on at 5 a.m. as the workers were uh, doing some uh, kind of sensitive uh, pruning of the strawberry plants in the nursery before they w- would go out to be planted and uh, using bullhorns. And so there there was— and obviously with a large number of people uh, uh, can be if you're trying to communicate and talk and organize, even if you're not using bullhorns or, you know, physically trampling plants or anything like that, it still disrupts the the, the business operation.
0: Let's start migrating back towards the case. Now, the property takings are, you know, the, these takings by government are sometimes necessary for the public good. And so, Ilya, can you help us out for those of us that did not go to law school? You know, what is a taking? And maybe give us some examples of how this benefits the public good when it's done properly.
1: Well, sure. The, um, a taking is a right to access or even own, literally take, property or part of property, whether it's a physical invasion, meaning people or buildings go onto it, or or take the entire property to build a, a military facility or a an interstate highway or or a school, these sorts of things that are classic public goods. Or uh, as in this case, an easement, maybe a, a right to uh, access, uh, beach owners often have the to be able to have their house on the beach, they have to allow an easement so other people can can access the beach uh, across uh, a side of their property. Or there's all sorts of of takings that either are uh, required to the government to pay, you know, if if the government takes your property to build, whether it's a a military facility or the border wall or a school, they have to compensate you for that property. Other kinds of, you know, there, there can be regulatory takings. That is, there's a regulation that doesn't take your property, but it diminishes the value in certain ways, uh, and there's a difference the way that courts look at it, whether it, you know, a, a, an economic regulation that prohibits uh, any kind of beneficial use of your property, that's different than one that just, uh, you know, diminishes your ability to do certain things. And so there's a complicated doctrine that's evolved over this, and, and part of the key distinction that came out in this case was whether this is a, uh, a pure regulation and often, unless that regulation destroys all your property value, it's hard to uh, to get just compensation. Or whether it's what's called a per se taking, that is a permanent or a regular taking of, of part of uh, your property rights.
0: Now, there there can sometimes be this uh, this blurry line between. Restrictions and takings, and if it falls more in the category of restrictions, you know that there, there is not just compensation given in exchange for the property. But when the needle moves over to takings, you know that's when you start opening yourself up to the government needing to pay some type of just compensation. So, maybe help us out with that distinction and what factors does a court look to when they make those uh, determinations? Well, if we're looking at traditional
1: health and safety regulations, that basically prevents. Nuisances, because you're not allowed to use your property, even if you own it completely, and there's no question, you're not allowed to use it in a way that creates a nuisance, leaking toxic chemicals or uh, playing loud noise at all uh, hours of the night or conducting operations that are dangerous that could set fires that uh, affect neighboring properties. That's why we are, you know, having your your you know this is the news in Florida, right? Having your building collapse because it's not structured properly. Right. That's why health inspections, safety inspections, limits on how tall you can build, uh, various things like that, those kinds of very traditional regulations or or inspections, those are not considered to be takings. They're they're considered to be regulations. Once, however, it's not kind of a, a nuisance prevention. Once it's not kind of a uh, an incidental trespass. If the police are running onto your property to to catch a uh, a murderer who's escaping from from somewhere, you know that's a temporary trespass. Once it becomes a, a regular use or preventing you from excluding those you don't want on your property, that's when it starts coming into the realm
0: of of becoming a taking. Well, let's wrap it up in a nice bow. So the uh, the Supreme Court made its decision in Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid. And so uh, tell us what that decision was. Walk us through uh, some of the reasoning of the majority opinion.
1: This was a six-to-three decision in favor of the Cedar Point Nursery. This is one of the few cases this term where the justices aligned uh, so-called ideologically. So the six Republican-appointed justices were in the majority, the three Democratic-appointed justices were in dissent. The majority opinion by by Chief Justice Roberts said that this access regulation was a per se taking requiring just compensation. That is, this wasn't just kind of an incidental uh, regulation or prevent some sort of nuisance. Uh, It may well be for the public good, but, you know, even if the government passes laws for the public good if they constitute a taking then they you know the public should pay for that so this is akin to granting an easement to the military to conduct exercises regularly on your property as this was the case 3 hours a day for 120 days of the year and um, as as Roberts concluded unlike a mere trespass the regulation grants a formal entitlement to physically invade the land unlike a law enforcement search no traditional background principle of property law requires the growers to admit union organizers, and unlike standard health and safety inspections, the access regulation is not germane to any benefit provided to agricultural employers or any risk posed to the public. So this is purely, again, this may well be for the public good, but that's what takings are. That's what the power of eminent domain is when you condemn property, or in this case, take part of the property rights that California is entitled to pass this law, but then it has to compensate the employer for, uh, impinging on their property rights.
0: So bottom line, you know, going forward, at least in California, you know, if a, uh, one of these agricultural business owner, property owners says, uh, sees the, the union organizers coming up to the property and they knock on the door and say, Hey, we want to come in and talk with the workers. Now they have a right to say no and can keep them out. Correct?
1: Yes. And presumably California officials are going to look at other kinds of regulations they might be able to enact or, Uh, facilitate under labor laws, maybe allow organizers, you know, make sure that they're right across the property line at certain times and the the employers are required to allow their workers to go up to them. I I don't know. I mean, there there is different ways that if California wants to facilitate union organization that they can do so without violating uh, property rights. Or California could uh, start a fund to compensate property owners that are
0: burdened by these kinds of intrusions. Well, Ilya, thank you so much for being here. It was great talking with you again. And uh, you know, if our audience, they want to follow up with you and your work, where can they find you?
1: Sure. If you go to Cato.org, C-A-T-O.org, you can look at my work. Uh, I'm on Twitter, at iShapiro. And again, to to plug the book that I came out that continues to be absolutely uh, relevant, that's, uh, that's Supreme Disorder Judicial Nominations in the Politics of America's Highest Court. And it's available whether you want to go to Amazon or independent booksellers, uh, multiple places online.
0: And I'll just say personally, I actually read your book. It was one of the feature points of one of our past interviews, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But it's a great book. You learn a lot about the Supreme Court. So anybody that's curious about uh, jurisprudence, highly recommend the book. So thank you again so much, Ilya, for joining us today. My pleasure. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. We value the time you invest with us. And if you like today's episode, please share it via text message from your favorite podcasting app. It's good for the show. It's good for our sponsor. And speaking of which, one more thank you to our sponsor, Noda. You can find them at trustnoda.com forward slash legal. That's Noda spelled N-O-T-A. And last but never least, thank you to our team producer, Molly McDonough, and our LTN audio crew. They are the best. This has been Legal Talk today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. <laughs>
1: All right.